and welcome to the Untapped Philanthropy Podcast. I'm your host and Flux co-founder, Corinne Mitchell. I've spent my career exploring technology's role in amplifying impact within our social sector, and more specifically, helping funders to learn to leverage technology and data to connect and better serve our collective causes, constituents, and communities. In this podcast series, my team and I will profile social sector leaders, public figures, philanthropists, and industry futurists to explore this fascinating intersection of funding, technology, and policy. We're here to analyze the most critical and formative topics and trends that shape philanthropy both today and tomorrow. We hope this series leaves you inspired to think and act through a more collective and visionary lens. For this month's episode, we wanted to follow on with a a natural extension to one of our previous episodes on trust-based philanthropy and gear today's discussion around the grantee. This week's guest takes a radical approach on how we can actually place power back in the hands of the grantees, employing trust-based practices at a global level. So without further ado, I am thrilled to welcome Executive Director of Move92, Geneva Pritchard. Geneva, thank you so much for being on with us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm a huge fan of your podcast, so I'm I'm really excited to be here today. So Move92, tell me about more about the name, actually, and maybe the story behind it. Yeah, so when we, before Move92 was branded, we were called the Girls and Women's Leadership Initiative. And we were writing a kind of a big research paper on why this style of giving was so important. And we came across a statistic that annually $10 billion is allocated to gender equity around the world. And 92% of that money goes to big international aid organizations, which means only 8% gets into the hands of local leaders. And for us, we were like, yes, our mission is to move some of that 92% into the hands of the communities. And the cool thing is, um, since we started just just a couple of years ago, we have given 84 grants to 35 different partners in 12 countries. And we also have a network of grant makers in the US, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, and Thailand. And week by week, those numbers are growing. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah, we're really, we're really proud of it because a couple of years ago, I, I was more like three, three and a half years ago, this was really a concept is this going to work? Are people going to be interested in this? This this feels wild. Like we know that this is the way, but are, do other people know? Right. And the more we share our story, the more people are coming back to us and saying, I want to be a part of this. And what's so interesting is when you're thinking about it in the early days, you're working so much about, you know, we're working in a detailed way around the education of why. And it's almost like, and, and I find this with honestly, on my technology side, like you can have an idea and you might be like, this is what's going to happen. And this is going to change the world. And we've got this, but like so much of it is understanding where people are and helping them to take the steps towards a vision that they help define. And I think that's something that as in the early days of flux, I can speak for what we've, what we experienced, which is we could go in and create stuff. But if we didn't show them a path to the logic, or more importantly, we didn't let them help define what that end state was, they weren't going to get there. But I think there's this incredible shift that's occurred in philanthropy over the last even two years, I would say, in terms of willingness and interest to say, how do we best show up for our grantees? And I wonder, to some degree, even if things like COVID and other aspects where 
you know, grants that were given to certain people like may not have been relevant during a time and place where other needs were there. And if you're not listening to your grantees, you're not going to have it deployed in the right manner. So it's such a cool thing that you and Shadi both have had an opportunity to really see your visions that you had years ago hmm. come to fruition. And, and you're seeing this sort of critical inflection point of the grant makers saying, tell us more. And that's, that's I think, such a powerful place and, and really encourage everyone who's listening to the call you know, to get more information on these orgs and reach out because that's really something that I think continues to keep us all educated on how to apply some of these principles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. For the audience that may be familiar or may need to learn a little bit more, tell us a little bit about yourself and what kickstarted you in your career in philanthropy. Well, my background is really in international development. I got my undergraduate degree from Seattle University in international development and had my first taste of the kind of the NGO sector uh, my junior year, I worked for Care International in Nicaragua as part of a one-year program through the university, and it was it was so eye-opening because it was my first time really seeing the magic of community-led solutions and also some of the barriers to that because of the bureaucracy of big aid organizations. So my first um, experience was also the first time I began questioning wow, this is a really interesting sector and how powerful the communities were. After that, I got my graduate degree uh, for, in master's in global health in Thailand. And I lived on the Thailand-Burma border for a couple of years. And again, just really was continuously blown away with how communities truly know the solutions to the unique issues that they are facing. Now, that might seem really obvious. Like, of course, the communities know the solutions to the unique problems that they face. However, a lot of traditional philanthropy and international development is often rooted in Western solutions. So kind of fast forward to today, I've got this 20 years of experience in the sector, and um, I'm just so excited to be looking at it from a different perspective of philanthropy, which is a bit different than the international development sector, international aid sector. So within philanthropy, we really get to work with individual grant makers, family foundations, or businesses that are looking to give in a different way. And we can harness the power of unrestricted funding. So it's been a really exciting 20-year journey in international development, um, culminating to what we're doing today, which I feel like is just really working with promoting community-led solutions. So that's that's something that I think is so interesting because in, in many ways, in a, in a wonderful way, actually, you know, when I speak with a lot of our clients at Flux and their grant makers, there is an, not just a willingness, but an interest to really hear this perspective and to really adopt practices that obviously make it something that they can both digest, that they can ensure is doing the, the work they want, the impact that, you know, they know can happen. All those things actually can be made better by, you know, uh, applying many of these practices. And I think, you know, you shared that our previous guest, who was executive director of the Trust-Based Philanthropy Project, this is um, Shadi Salehi, she handles sort of the education component to many of these grant makers. Um, and you actually focus kind of phase two, if you will, of the effort, the implementation. So you shared that our previous guest, executive director of the Trust-Based Philanthropy Project, Shadi Salehi, she handles the component um, of educating many of these grant makers on the trust-based philanthropy processes. And you you do the work on phase two of these efforts, the implementation. Tell us how this works at Move92. 
Yeah, awesome. So we have developed such a great uh, relationship with the Trust-Based Philanthropy Project, all of it online, of course, because I'm in New Zealand and we couldn't travel for a really long time. But I have to say, Shadi and I just finally met in person a couple weeks ago in San Francisco, and it was like Trust-Based Philanthropy fireworks. We had so much fun together. Um, she is, I just can't say enough about how great um, she is. So essentially, yeah. So the Trust-Based Philanthropy Project is an incredible resource for content about what is trust-based philanthropy? What are the barriers? What does it mean? What does it mean legally? What does it mean in a corporate setting? Kind of um, really introducing the what it is. And then when there's interest, Move92 can step in and say, hey, if this resonates with you as a grant maker, let's figure out how to get your money to grassroots organizations around the world. So the initial conversation with a new grant maker can go one of a few ways. We'll ask the grant maker if they have a theme or a region of interest, and sometimes it's both. And from there, then we can curate recommendations on, on where to channel their money. So for example, I work with a grant maker here in Christchurch. She approached me. She had been giving to World Vision for many, many, many years. And she wanted to shift the way she was giving. And she said, you know, she spends half of her time in Greece and the other half in New Zealand. And she's really interested in getting money to the asylum seeker population, in particular, the homeless asylum seekers in Athens. It was so interesting because our team doesn't have experience in Athens. We do have a lot of experience with refugee and asylum seeker populations. So we put together an informal advisory team. Who do we know that works in Athens? Who do we know that's working with these populations? And so that's step one, we activate our networks and then we build trust bridges to figure out, well, who, the, who the people, the people we trust, who do they trust that are working in this space? And after about six months, we were able to find a few organizations that were working with housing and um, housing needs for the asylum seekers in Athens. So that one was really specific. Um, so again, that's kind of, she knew she wanted to give in a trust-based way, and she had this really specific dream. And then our team was able to make that happen and curate the relationships. So that's that's really how we work. Of If you want to give in this way, we can help make it happen. Amazing. And as you kind of look at those, and I think that's so interesting, and, and I, it almost sounds to this point where you're looking and saying from a concierge perspective, <laughs> like how do we service things and, and make this happen for both the funders and to really help the communities, the actual problems, like you said, that lie within the community, starting to address them from people that know that area that that um, of, of focus or geography or whatever it be. So there's something very powerful there. What are some of the kind of surprising or interesting data points or anecdotal stories that you can share about some of these um, experiences, and some of these connections you're making? Well, gosh, I mean, we could have like 15 podcasts on me telling inspirational stories. I'm not sure, actually. Goodness, but I did narrow <laughs> yeah. it down. I narrowed it down um, to two in particular that had a tech component. And the first one is Purple Code, and they're located in Indonesia. Purple Code is a group of women that are really promoting a feminist internet. And the reason for this is they said it's really crucial that women have a say in how technology is developed. Now, when we met them in 2019, they were rejecting outside funding because funders were coming in and saying, I'll give you funding if you do A, B, and C. And they're like, no way. We are pushing this agenda. This is ours. We know exactly what is needed 
to empower women in Indonesia to have a place on the internet. So we funded them a $10,000 unrestricted fund at that time and have just really watched them flourish over the years. Um, they now are officially registered. They're accepting outside funding because they have become, I don't want to say mainstream, but in a way they, they took their really radical ideas, what seemed radical from the outside in 2019. And now, for example, in 2019, they were getting three to four online gender-based violence um, cases a month. And now they're getting between five to 10 a week. In addition to that, they have become the go-to for both the police and policymakers, because it turns out the police and policymakers didn't know what online gender-based violence was, didn't know how to define it, didn't know how to punish the perpetrators or empower the victims. And so this group that when we met them, they, they, they couldn't really get their voices heard through small unrestricted grants, they were able to grow to be the go-to organization in Indonesia for a feminist internet and online gender-based violence. Another really great example is in Laos. We work with an organization called Quick Laos, which is the secretariat for the Lao Farmer Network, um, which includes 5,000 individual farmers. Now, the main goal of the Lao Farmer Network is to link smallholder farmers to markets. But the problem that they were finding is there was a lack of up-to-date information on production and market info. And there was also middlemen that were taking a big fee to transfer information from the farmers to the market. So when we met with them, the first thing that we like to say, not only with, with ClickWild, but with all of our new partners is, hey, if you were to receive a $10,000 unrestricted grant what would you use it for? What are, do you have any wild dreams that you can't get funding for or anything that you feel like wouldn't fit into a general um, grant application? And let me tell you, the, typically the look on the faces of our partners, I just always want to capture <laughs> that like one second. You know, they're like, wait, what? Are you <laughs> it's like a magic wand. <laughs> That's what I always use my example. I'm always like, if I gave you a magic wand, what would you do? And I feel like you get these amazing dreams that are not that unreasonable to ask for. So I think what you asked them to, to say there, it, it makes sense. It probably opened up their mind of thinking directly what is needed, right? Yes, exactly. So they came back to us with um, an idea to develop an app that would provide real-time information from the farmers directly to the market. And of course, we're just like, oh my gosh, yes, we are going to transfer the funding immediately. We're so excited to see this happen. Yeah. So fast forward to today, the app has been launched. Um, there's already like a couple hundred farmers that are on there and they're doing trainings to um, try to get it to a wider audience of farmers in Laos. And then we've just about to give them a second grant that will be storytelling on how this is impacting the lives of farmers. Because of course, what we want is for them to know what the market needs so they can um, you know, work their farm to the market needs. So, you know, looking at that and talking about that transition, I mean, in somewhat in a mindset in many ways is what you just asked them to do, that transition from traditional philanthropy to employing this sort of direct and flexible funding model. I mean, what needs to change, not just mindset, but is there a system that needs to be overhauled or what are some of those things that help to sort of bridge that place where you can start to say, we're now looking at flexible funding and, and, and employing this differently? So from the grantmaker perspective, we're finding that trust is a lot more vulnerable than we anticipated. 
those of us that have been in the sector a long time, this all seems really obvious. Yes, listen to the community. They know what they need. But in reality, the philanthropy sector has been built in a way where it's a mindset of Western solutions Mm -hmm. being introduced to those that need it. Absolutely. And so it's part of our job, and I love it, is working with the grant maker to uncover the barriers to trust. And it's okay for it to feel uncomfortable at times. And it's okay to question like, gosh, I don't know how to trust a local leader in another country. And so we really take the grant maker through this journey of addressing where trust feels uncomfortable and how to take the next step. From the part from our local leader side, we want them to trust the grant maker as well. In we have a couple partners in Sri Lanka, and when we first started working there, we heard from some people that after the tsunami, there was a huge influx of international aid, and the international aid really went in and just didn't listen to the needs of the local communities and kind of bulldozed it and took over. And it really burned a lot of these local organizations. So there was kind of a distrust of international aid. And so when we started working in Sri Lanka, we wanted to be really open about that trust from the local community wasn't necessarily there. And it and we had to rebuild it with our partners. And so the trust is on both sides. And we really, you know, it's a journey. Trust-based philanthropy is a journey, not a destination. And we are on it, but we are learning every single day and we mess up and we are constantly trying to tweak our systems to be easier on our partners and easier on our team. Um, But it is definitely, I think all of us are in it for the long game. Um, One thing that I like to say is that our grant makers get to decide where the money goes and the local leader decides how it's spent. Right. I mean, where are some of the typical pitfalls that you start to see things fail? I mean, when you talk about the lack of trust and such an interesting concept of like, I feel like people from, like you said, this all seems so obvious because it's something that logically means like, I I trust you implicitly to make the right decision. But where does it pitfall maybe even subconsciously occur to people that, that don't realize that they're making mistakes in some of this? What are some examples you have of that? Well, I think two things. One is, I think a lot of people love the concept of trust-based philanthropy um, and they'll engage in the dialogue and then they'll be like, okay, honey, give 10 grand to the Red Cross. I mean, not, I'm not dogging the Red Cross at all, but it's a very oh, not safe, at all. No, no, no. It's true though. A very safe um, mm-hmm. place to give your money. So it's the transition from trusting a brand like the Red Cross or Save the Children, these brands that we have known, all of us have grown up with these brands. So we know the brand and then there's the idea that they're doing good work in the world. So it's the it's the transition of trusting a brand to trusting a human. And again, that transition is, um, it can be a bit sticky, but it's really a fun one to bring someone on the journey of um, shifting, shifting their trust. Right. And I think that's something that when we talk about that, to your point, I, I always joke that probably not a great joke, but I always joke that oftentimes it feels like donors sometimes, you know, invest like 
Um, you know, if you're if they're buying stocks, they'd buy, you know, Apple, IBM, things like that. But the truth mm -hmm. is, is that there's it's an interesting one, because when you're talking about the social sector and these impact players, they come in all forms. They come in size, geo, you know, all these things are, are places where you may not have visibility to them. So I think groups like Move92 offer up such an opportunity for us to really understand who those major players are that might be more impact makers than maybe the the sort of large scale, like you said, overhaul, multi national kind of um, entities. It's just such an interesting concept that I think is so unique to the way we work. Mm. Um, so I, I love that your organization is doing that. And and in that, though, I, I wonder, too, beyond just the giving and finding those impact makers, how do you look at empowering grantees after they get funding? What does that look like in terms of changes or reporting structures or things that differ beyond just finding those big impact players, but actually yeah. enabling them to do the work ongoing in a way that enable that embraces, if you will, some of those standards that you know to be, you know, so important to their success? Well, I think I think a huge part of it, and I know that you guys cover this a lot in your podcast, is reporting and how to decrease the administrative burden on grassroots organizations. Um, I love the fix the form, uh, what do you, I mean, hashtag or movement that, that you Oh, yeah. No, it's amazing. Kari and team have, have started something so special there in terms of using that voice and creating something that not just, um, you know, people rallied again, but they brought technology partners in and were able to touch over a million nonprofits with this, this, these improvements that were just as simple as saying, here's what nonprofits, you know, really don't need to deal with. Like, can we figure out better ways to do this? So I'm with yes. you. It's such a great one. Oh my gosh. And so a huge part of what we do to work with our partners is all of our narrative reports are phone calls. So about once a quarter, we'll check in with a partner and we'll have just these really open, honest dialogues on how are things going? What are the challenges? What have you had to change along the way? And then our team type up the notes and that's the report done. So our partner doesn't have to submit any sort of narrative reporting to us. Um, we're, we're trying to work within the existing systems in the U.S. and what the IRS requires for reporting. Um, so we're, we're exploring various fiscal sponsors in the U.S. to see which ones are pushing the boundaries with trust-based philanthropy. Um, and I think that's a really exciting part of the trust-based philanthropy movement is questioning, do we need all of these reports? Like, what, what is really needed here and what can we get rid of? So we're just, well, what are we, mm -hmm. yeah, I was going to say, or what are we working with that, you know, to some degree is being used or not being used? I think that's the other thing that people don't realize is if you're not using the information on a report, don't ask for it Yes, <laughs> and, exactly. and leave that burden off of people, like use the information you have. I'm with you. Yeah. And things like, do we really need receipts for things like, a motorcycle ride that you took from A to B. We don't. We trust that you took that motorcycle ride. So we're trying to really push the boundaries of um, of finding fiscal sponsors that are going mm -hmm. to require the least amount of reporting as they are legally required. So that's a fun journey for us is kind of seeing who, you know, who are the who are the movers and shakers that are that are right. deeply entrenched in trust-based philanthropy and doing their research because the thing is again, these systems are so old and it takes courage to question the not-for-profit sector because it's built on altruism. So mm -hmm. there are certain fiscal sponsors and not-for-profits that are really questioning the systems. And that is the space that we are moving in of, hey, let's get with other people that are questioning this and, and trying mm -hmm. to get rid of some of the 
administrative documents that are no longer serving the partners in particular, but also from the from our side, it, you know, it's administratively burdensome for us as well. Absolutely. And I think when you when you talk about that, and I feel like sometimes, like you said, certain funders will see the light and those are the ones that, you know, right now are, are you know, not not a layup for you guys, but they're aligned in that value set or have beliefs or understanding of where they're using things or not using things and sort of willing to come off the mark. But a lot of times, you know, I'm wondering when you go into a situation where you're working with folks that are tr- that are interested in trying to understand how do they let go of some of those reins. What aspects make trust-based philanthropy hard to talk about and why? You know, what are some of those places that you see people sort of trip up and say, yeah, but? Mm. Yeah, it's it's fascinating because I would say the number one question I get across the board is um, how can you trust that they're not using the money in ways that are detrimental? Like, how do you know they're not swindling you out of your money? And it's been, when, you know, when I first started in this role, I spent a lot of time answering that question. And, and now I'm just like, are you kidding me? Everybody's going to ask me this question. Wow. <laughs> like, and it's people that I wouldn't even expect, people that I expect right. to be already, you know, willing to trust via, you know, someone that's different than them. And so it's, for me, it's almost like a, it totally blows my mind that mm-hmm. the concept of trusting a human in another place different to your own is so, di- it's so difficult. <laughs> yeah, um, it is. It is one of those things that I, I am always shocked by, but you know what, the world has these shocking moments, but, but in that, I mean, yeah, like what are the, what are the things, maybe what are some examples of things that people typically, is it letting go of report structures? Is it data? Like what are the things that you find are the hard to release? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, elements. So I think some of the hard to to release elements, one is control. Mm -hmm. That there is a sense of control when you receive a spreadsheet that is telling you exactly what you feel like you need to see for impact. So we replace, like we do not like log frames, theories of change, any of it. We don't want it. What we really want is a good conversation where we are bringing instincts and intuition and personality to the table where our partners can tell us exactly what's happening in a very honest way. So the barrier of, of again, it's of how, how things have been reported to us all of our lives. It's shifting that. Um, I think another barrier is letting go of the concept that West, the Western way is helpful or better or needed Mm -hmm. and really taking the time to shift that it's really powerful to bring local leaders to the table and listen rather than bring local leaders to the table and offer perspective. It doesn't mean that everyone doesn't have a voice at the table, but it does mean bringing people to the table that have never had a, a seat at the table before. And giving them some extra space because there's a lot we can learn. And there's many, many years of not listening. You know what's interesting? And this is something that, like, I don't know if you've experienced this, but so I I, I love, love, love New Zealand. One of my most favorite things in the world is, is everything about that country, I tell you. But they are, um, one thing that struck me about the philanthropy, and I'm curious um, if you've seen this too in your experience living there, is they were so grantee-minded. They were aware of their community, honoring of their 
the culture, obviously, and the regions and, and this sort of history of that. It was such an interesting thing that I, I was struck by it because, in principle, they were willing to make jumps that I hadn't seen other countries do. And I, I was wondering if you've ever seen culturally that certain countries or structures have actually gravitated more towards some of this trust-based uh, work you know, um, over others. And I, I wonder what those attributes are, if, if it's something that you've really thought about. Because I have to admit that's something that struck me very anecdotally when I was working with the New Zealand community charities, the foundations, they all work together and are interested in each other's work to be able to contribute back to that central social sector that they all support. Oh, interesting. Oh my gosh. We should talk offline more about that. I'm curious. Who I know, right? I know. I, it, I, on, on many things, all things New Zealand, you'll always have my ear. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh, well, that's really interesting. I think the trends that I really see in New Zealand giving is it's a very domestically focused, um, very domestically focused giving. It's also New Zealand is, you know, more or less a socialist country. And so there, it's a really different mindset mm. of uh, very community focused. I think, you know, a really good example of New Zealand being quite different, like it has a different mindset is when Christchurch had the mosque shooting right. on March 15th, a couple of years ago, that essentially the country launched peace in the face of a terror attack. And it was the most astounding time to be living here in Christchurch. And it, it, everyone took a moment, many moments actually, to really embrace the Muslim community and learn a lot from them and just be more inclusive than they probably were before. And it really, my husband and I, my husband's Canadian Kiwi, his parents are from New Zealand, but he was born in, in Toronto. Um, it, it really, to me, showed the mindset of a nation, the open-mindedness. So the Friday, one week after the mosque shooting uh, was a Friday, the mosque shooting happened at the Friday call to prayer. A week later, every radio station, television station, um, the whole country stopped and participated in the Friday call to prayer. So Geneva, if someone, you know, is, is interested to say, how do I learn more? What are the next steps to kind of get started in this, this journey? You know, wh where would you suggest they start? I would say nobody's doing it better than the Trust-Based Philanthropy Project. The content they're producing is, it's just, it's really brilliant in describing what, what this movement is and why it's important. And then if you're already there, if this sounds like, if it resonates with you, and if you're ready to start giving, I would say get in touch with the Move92 team and begin the journey of, um, curating relationships with local leaders around the world. And we can get, essentially, we can get your funds to any corner of the world um, to really suit your passions and interests in your philanthropy. Fantastic. We'll make sure that all of your information is uh, appended to this podcast episode description and, and, and also at the very end of the podcast, we'll go through a couple links for folks. Awesome. So we want and encourage you all to reach out to G Geneva and her team. Um, absolutely fantastic. And Geneva, thank you so much for all the insight today. All right, so let's end this podcast on a rapid fire note. I'm going to run you through a series of short, quick questions and you shoot back the answer first thing that comes to mind. Sound good? Yes. Okay, ready? You're having dinner with someone, anybody from time, current or historical, who is it? Well, I'm going to cheat a little bit because it's going to be two people. And That's it's okay. Me, the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. And the reason for that Ooh. is I recently read the book, The Book of Joy, which is oh. um, a journey of their friendship. And it is 
the two of them together, they bring joy and laughter and connection in the context of some of the most painful, real things happening mm. in the world. Oh, that's wonderful. What's the book called? What was it one more time? The Book of Joy. Oh, that's so simple and beautiful. I love that. All right. The next question is, if you had a superpower, what would it be? Uh, my superpower would be that the ability to have myself and everyone around me dip into the present moment. Ooh, I have never heard that answer before. And I really like that one. <laughs> That's very nice. Okay. Um, what are you most proud of accomplishing in your career? Well, I recently turned 40 and I feel like actually being 40 is my superpower because there you go. <laughs> it's A little wisdom. So awesome. Um, I guess in my career, I feel like I'm confident enough to know how important intuition, instincts, and trust are. And I feel like with myself and my team, I just say, look, these are our biggest forms of currency. And this is what's going to get us where we want to go in life, personally and professionally. So it's really honing in on when you feel something in your body, listen to it. I love that. I just turned, or I'm not just turned, I just turned 43. And I'm kind of, I feel the same way about my 40s. I'm like, this is great. I feel oh, like really? I... I'm so much more into like finding peace than excitement now. I'm like, thank goodness. <laughs> so it's it's yeah. just my shift. I'm I'm thrilled <laughs> about it. <laughs> All right. And lastly, what podcast are you listening to that you would recommend to our listeners? Besides, of course, this fabulous podcast that we're on yes. right now. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what my answer is. Um, and it's gonna reveal that I am not hip or cool at all. Um, I do not listen to new, like new or cool music. So my, yeah, I don't either. <laughs> tell me, tell me your deepest, darkest nerdy, nerdy secret. That's good. Yeah. Grateful dead. Um, <laughs> so the, but I, the podcast that I listen to is one that I go back to often and it's a 10 part series with Oprah mm -hmm. and Eckhart Tolle that unpacks each chapter of a new earth, um, awakening to your life's purpose. And oh, interesting. I feel like when, when like my heart or my brain gets tied in a knot, I will go back to one of these, what, uh, one episode of this 10 part series, and it's like an oxygen mask. Interesting. That is super interesting. I'll have to put it on my list. I had not heard of that one. Yeah. Wonderful. If you've, I don't know if you've read the book or not, but it's worth reading the book first. No. Thank you for the recommendation. Well, Geneva, thank you so much for joining the podcast today, sharing more about yourself, your work at Move92. Um, our listeners can learn more about Move92 at move92.org. You can listen and download our episodes at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and of course, directly from our website at flux.io. That's F-L-U-X-X dot I-O.